So the Israelites have just gone through the Red Sea, the waters were parted and then they sang the song of Moses and Miriam, they were pretty, pretty excited in their singing and then they come to the waters of Marah and Elam and where we read in verse 22 of chapter 15, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped near the water. The whole is right. Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted but you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in and this is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that we should grumble against us, that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the cloud of the Lord appearing. There was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. 
The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept parts of it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning everyone gathered as much as they needed and when the sun grew hot it melted away. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. And he said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day of the Sabbath there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. That's helpful, isn't it? It's actually one and a half to two kilograms. Is that right? So that makes sense, doesn't it? One and a half to two kilograms. I don't actually know how many kilograms it is. I, I tend to work in ephahs and omers myself, so um, I find kilograms so discombobulating. But um, let's pray. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would test us and test our thoughts and our attitudes and that you would show us where we stand and that you would teach us that we live by every word which comes from your mouth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, uh, not with merely words which I speak, Lord, but with words empowered by your Holy Spirit for your glory and for our good. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I don't know about you, but I hate tests. 
Uh, I hate exams, they make me terribly nervous. Uh, actually, one of the reasons I never went, I, I waited so long to go back to study for ministry was because I didn't want to do exams. I couldn't face the idea of doing an, an exam. Uh, for years after I finished university, I, I had nightmares about having to sit exams unprepared. The nightmare was always something like, uh, I suddenly discovered I had an exam the next day and it was for a course that I'd enrolled in accidentally and I, uh, and I hadn't gone to any of the lectures and, uh, and I'd wake up in a cold sweat and I'd be like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get through this? Because um, I was always, <laughs> always worried about having an F on my academic transcript. But uh, anyway... Uh, but I, but I, I, I think a lot of people are the same. A lot of people don't really thrive on tests and exams. Um, and the, the, the purpose of exams, though, is really, in, in a way, it's, it's a good thing, isn't it? I mean, the purpose is to test people and to see what they don't know. Uh, and, and I think that's, in some ways, why we're terrified by them as well. We're terrified because we're, we're afraid that we'll be found out as frauds, uh, as charlatans, as people who don't know anywhere near as much about a subject as we should. You know, you've sat through a, a semester of university on, on a subject and you get to the examination and, and uh, everyone, it's plain for everybody to see that you haven't understood what anything that's been taught in that class. Uh, but actually, that's only kind of one side of a test, isn't it, I think? One side of a test is to kind of expose how bad we are. The other side of a test is actually to teach people things. The other side of a test if you think about exams in the best possible light, if you can do that, uh, the, best, the, the, kind of the best thing that an exam does is to teach people where they're at. To teach people what they do know and what they don't know. To teach people what they still need to learn. You come at the other side of a test and you go, well, actually, there's still some stuff in this subject that I, that I need to work on. Uh, it's, uh, examinations and tests used rightly can actually be for our good. And really, that's what these episodes uh, in these chapters of Exodus are about. On one side, they're about, negatively, about the people wrongly trying to test God himself when they shouldn't have done that. But on the other side, they're also about God testing the people. Uh, and about God testing the people so that they'll know, and so that we'll know as well, what it is that we most need to learn, uh, what it is that we most of all need to learn. What is it that we need to know? Uh, that's what these chapters uh, are all about. Uh, if you missed last week, we looked at chapters 13 and 14 and how God led the people out of Egypt and through the waters of the sea. He parted the Red Sea and led them through. We saw that the people were trapped between the sea on one side and the armies of Egypt on the other side uh, and that they grumbled against God, that they wished that they were back in Egypt because they couldn't trust God. But we saw that God actually did what they needed him to do. That is, they, he parted the waters of the sea, he led the people through, he conquered the armies of Egypt and in turn the people trusted and feared God. And now we find the people on the other side of the sea that they've been rescued by God, they've been protected by God and yet... In this chapter, we find that things are not as good as they seemed kind of once that miracle had been done. They trusted and feared God. It all sounded so good. And yet in the chapters that we've just read, the, we find the people grumbling against God all over again. Not just once, but three times. In the last few verses of chapter 15, they grumble against God because they can't find water. They've crossed the sea, they've gone into the desert, they've been wandering around for three days. That's it, three days since the miracle, right? Since the parting of the Red Sea. Three days, they've been wandering around, they can't find water, and already they start to grumble. They say to Moses, what are we going to drink? 
And through Moses, God uh, does this miracle. He makes the water drinkable again. Moses, God tells Moses to throw a log into the water. He does that. And, and through that, uh, in a miraculous way, God turns this water uh, to be drinkable. Well, there's one episode of grumbling uh, and, and deliverance, but then a little bit later, food becomes the issue. So in the beginning of chapter 16, we're told that 45 days after they'd left Egypt, the people come to a place called the Desert of Sin, which kind of sounds a bit ominous in English, but that's just, it's just a Hebrew word, actually. It's, it's, a, it's a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, it, it, it's just the name of a place. But there, in the Desert of Sin, the people grumble again, verse verse. Three, the Israelites said to them, If only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. <laughs> this is wonderful, isn't it? Moses, this is what you've done. You've brought us here to starve us to death. And look at what they think about, look, look at their memory of Egypt. Um, uh, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted. They've been out of Egypt for 45 days and they've confected this memory of Egypt which is completely unrelated to reality. They were starving, they were oppressed, they were, they were pushed to the limits. They had to make the same number of bricks that they'd always made but without uh, any of the resources. So, and now they, they've been out of it for a month and a half and they look back and they go, wow, it's like a, it's like a palace living in Egypt. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? It would be extraordinary, except for the fact, I think, that we're so prone to do that, aren't we? You know, it, it, for most of us, it probably only takes 30 days, you know, maybe not even that, a week. And we look back and we go, wow, they were good days, weren't they? They were just fantastic. God was really blessing us in Egypt. But now he's brought us into this death trap. They grumble against God again. Uh, and yet, despite they're grumbling in their wicked self-deception. God still provides the people with manna and with quail, this, this uh, manna, this kind of bread-like substance. Uh, and God's provision, again, is miraculous. It's just there in the morning when they, when they go to get it. But then they grumble for a third time. We didn't read it, but at the beginning of chapter 7, again, water becomes the issue. God's already given them water to drink once before, but they find themselves in another situation without water. So, so chapter 17, verse 2, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? You know, you'd think that after all that God had done for these people, that they would know better that they would be able to trust him and what he was doing for them, what he was doing through uh, his servant Moses. But they're still grumbling and they're still complaining. But actually Moses says something very interesting here and very telling uh, in what he says to the people. He says, why do you put the Lord to the test? So notice that each time that the people complain in these three episodes, we're told that their complaint is against Moses. So they speak to Moses and they grumble against Moses and they say, Moses, why have you done this? Why have you brought us here? Why have you led us out of Egypt? Why are you destroying our lives, Moses? Why are you doing that? 
But Moses says to the people, do you know, you're complaining against me. You're targeting all these complaints against me. But, you know, actually, the person that you're really complaining against is God. You might be talking to me, but actually, you're complaining against God. Moses puts these grumble, this grumbling and these complaints in kind of some theological light. Uh, he says something similar back in chapter 16, verse 8. In the morning, you'll see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? That is Moses and Aaron. You'll know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us. You're grumbling against the Lord. Moses and Aaron were God's appointed servants. They were appointed by God to lead God's people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And while it might appear at first that all that God's people are doing are complaining against Moses and Aaron. The truth is they're complaining against God and their, their complaint is that God is not good enough. How is that the case? Well, it's like if, uh, if you bake a cake, you know, you, you put all this effort into, into baking this wonderful cake uh, and then you bring it along and, uh, and you know, I think that it's rubbish uh, and it's the most awful cake in the world. Now, I might not say to you, well, you're a hopeless cook. I might just say, well, that's the most awful cake in the world, isn't it? You know, that's just, that's just vile. That cake is an enormous, vomitous mass. Uh, you know? And, and then you say, well, I'm a bit hurt by that, actually. Uh, it would not be much of a defense for me to say to you, I'm not grumbling against you. I'm just grumbling against the cake. Uh, you know, what would you think? you think, you're an idiot. Uh, you're, not, you're not just an idiot, but you're actually really offensive. Uh, the people weren't directly complaining against God, but actually they were implicitly, weren't they? Because it was God who stood behind it. It was God who was doing all this. It was God who was working all, the, all these things out. Uh, and in the, in the same way, that's what the, that's what the, the, the people were doing. They were, they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron, but they were actually grumbling against God. Now, you and I uh, don't have leaders appointed by God in the same way that Moses and Aaron were appointed by God to lead the people out of Egypt. Uh, that's not the same, but I think it's still the case that there are lots of ways in which we can fall into the same trap that the people of Israel fell into. That is, that we grumble about things or we grumble about people, but actually in doing that, we're, we're really grumbling about God. We might not think that we're doing that, uh, and we may not actually even be doing that deliberately. We may not be setting out... Uh, thinking to ourselves, well, I'm going to complain against God. But actually, that's the implication of what we're doing. So take, for instance, the life of the church. There's so many things, isn't there? You, know, if you, you probably don't even have to sit down for that long to think of some things that you could grumble about in the life of a church. Uh, you know, mediocre sermons. Uh, <laughs> like this one. Uh, me mediocre sermons, uh, mediocre service lead, mediocre music, uh, mediocre attendance, mediocre growth groups. You know, you go to a growth group and you think to yourself, well, that, you know, what a waste of time that was tonight. Uh, you know, or, or mediocre commitment, uh, or mediocre relationships. You know, you think to yourself, I expect so much more from the relationships with the people in my church, but I'm not getting that. You know, there's so many things, aren't there, that that we can complain about, things that don't meet our expectations. Uh, 
you name it, you can grumble about it. There's always something, isn't there? And no wonder that's true because we're all ordinary people, aren't we? And we're not just ordinary people, we're sinful people, we're imperfect people, we're flawed people. But actually the truth of the gospel is is that in Jesus we're sinners called by God into a family and into the body of Christ and equipped by God, equipped by God through his Holy Spirit to serve each other in love. It's a profound idea, isn't it? That God, you know, we're not just here of our own volition, but actually God has brought us together. God has given us his spirit in order that we might love and serve each other, that we might serve him and honor him in our lives together. And so to grumble against each other then is fundamentally to grumble against God who has called us and equipped us to serve each other and to love each other. Now I'm not saying that there's no place, I'm not saying at all that there's no place for, um, you know, trying to make things better and, you know, thinking about what we could do better and, and all that kind of thing. Or helping people to improve. But I... I just, I just think grumbling is such um, a, a, a dangerous and easy pursuit for all of us, whether it's in the church or whether it's in our family lives or our home lives or, our, or in our workplaces, isn't it? It's, it it's, it's almost instinctive to complain about our situation um, and, to, and, to, and to use the defense of the people of Israel. Oh, no, I'm not... I'm not grumbling against you. I'm just I'm grumbling, grumbling against these circumstances. Um, you know, I, I'm grumbling against that other person. But actually, so often, actually, the person that we're grumbling against is God. It's God who's equipped the people around us. It's God who's put us in the situation that we find ourselves. It's God who's done it. Actually, so often, it's God that we're dissatisfied with even though we don't say it. I think a helpful test of whether we're grumblers or whether we're really interested in helping others to grow in serving Jesus is to work out how much time we spend critiquing the things that other people do versus how much time we spend being thankful to God for the things that people do. Sometimes I found a helpful test for myself is that when I'm disappointed in something, is instead of uh, making an issue or, or going over and over it in my head, I think to myself, well, actually, what I should do is I should spend the next hundred days thanking God every day for that person and their ministry. You know, rather than someone doing something wrong once and uh, being discontent about it. Uh, and, and I'm always tempted when people come and, you know, grumble about whether it's in the life of the church or anything else, uh, to say, well, go away and pray a hundred times for that person and thank God for them and then come back and we'll talk about it. Because I think so often our lack of thankfulness shapes our discontent. But actually in doing that, in grumbling uh, against uh, others around us and our circumstances and our situation, we often put God to the test. We test his patience uh, in the same way that the people of Israel tested his patience. They God is is loving us through our circumstances, through the people around us, and all we can do uh, is complain about it. So the people test God. They test God's patience because of their grumbling, uh, and they hide behind uh, Moses and Aaron. But actually, it turns out in these chapters that God is also doing some testing of his own. 
uh, in chapter 15, verse 25, when God provides drinking water for the people, we're told, there the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Uh, and again, with the provision of manna in the wilderness, God says to Moses in chapter 16, verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Um, the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. The particular test that God has in mind for the people, the test of their obedience, is very simple. Uh, he'll provide manna six days of the week, uh, and for five days, they should go out and gather enough just for that day. So the manna will be there in the morning. They go out, gather all, all, only what they need for that, that present day. And they shouldn't try and kind of keep any over for the day after. But then on the sixth day, the day before the Sabbath, they're to go out and they should get enough for two days so that they can have enough for the Friday and then uh, enough for the Saturday without having to go out to collect any. But we're told... You know, it's kind of a pretty simple set of instructions, really, isn't it? Uh, five days go out, and then six days go out and get twice as much. But we're told in chapter 16, verse 20, however, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. So, so here, here's God, there's simple instructions, uh, but the people just don't listen. The same thing happens then on the sixth day, or kind of the other way around. They're supposed to gather twice as much, and yet they don't listen again. So, so chapter 16, verse 27, Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Surprise, surprise. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, simple instructions, there's almost no reason not to listen. Uh, you know, they, it was just about gathering food. It wasn't like it was going to impinge on their lives in any great way. And yet they can't do it. God was testing them, we're told, to see whether they would listen to him and obey him, but they wouldn't. And so we get this kind of picture, if you like, of the people of, of, of God, rescued from this slavery, gathered by God, miraculously provided for, brought through the Red Sea, uh, headed toward the land uh, that God had promised them. And we see that what was supposed to be a new beginning isn't, because actually the people are the same old people that they've always been. It was supposed to be a new beginning, but it was anything but, because the people can't listen to God uh, and can't obey God. Something more profound was needed than moving people from one country to another country. God was showing them that there was that something more that needed to be done. But this uh, test was not only uh, designed by God so that he could see something about where the people were at, it was also designed to kind of reveal, as I said, to the people something about themselves, that, that, that they needed to know something. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, in, in a book, a few books after Exodus, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses pulls back the curtain, if you like, on what God was doing here in this episode. He pulls back the curtain and shows them what God was doing by providing them with manna in the wilderness. 
So in Deuteronomy 8, God says, uh, Moses says to the people, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years? Why? To humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, talking about this here, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, in order to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Moses is saying that God deliberately let them get hungry and let them get thirsty in order to test how they would respond. And in order to teach them that they live by every word that comes from God's mouth. Exactly what that means, living by every word that comes from God's mouth, is explained a few verses later. Moses says, He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. That is, the great thing that these people were supposed to learn is that it wasn't their wealth and their power and their strength that had got them to the situation that they were in. The the reason they got there was because God had kept his promises. The promises that he'd made to Abraham, that through a descendant of Abraham, God would put the world right, that he'd fix the world for all those who trusted in him. That is, God wanted the people to realize, the people of Israel in Israel, in the desert, he wanted them to realize that they wouldn't get there under their own steam. They wouldn't get to their final destination by their own power or by their own strength. It wouldn't be by their strength and power that they'd be delivered. It certainly wouldn't be through their obedience. They couldn't even follow basic instructions. It would be by God's power and God's provision that they would reach the final destination. They needed to learn that, and we need to learn that. We need to learn that it's not our strength or our power that have got us to this point in our lives. And it's not our strength and power that will get us on to the next point. Uh, It's not your strength and power that have made you brilliant or successful, uh, or that have made you beautiful and strong, or whatever else it might be. It's not your power and strength that have got you a nice house and a comfortable life. If you have those things, they're undeserved gifts from God. There's one thing for sure that's true, that is you don't deserve them if you have them. None of us deserve anything from God. And just as it's not any of those things that have come about, those things haven't come about by your power, it won't be your beauty or brilliance or power or strength which will guarantee your future. Those things cannot guarantee what tomorrow will bring. You know, you can, you can jump in the car uh, on the way home from church this morning and you can be as vigilant as you want going through every set of traffic lights and following every road rule and being hyper-vigilant about what everybody else on the road is doing. But you cannot guarantee that your life is safe and secure. You can't do it. You might do that and have a heart attack. 
brain hemorrhage or someone just comes clean out of nowhere and smashes into you. We don't control our lives. We don't control our destiny. It's not our power or our brilliance that has got us to this point. It's not our power and our brilliance that will get us to the next point. The way that we live is not under our own steam, but we live off God's word, God says. That is, we live off God's promises. Like the Israelites, we need to learn to humble ourselves and to trust God and to take God at his word, to, to believe God when he makes promises to us about salvation in Jesus Christ. About watching over us so that not a hair can fall from our head without the will of our Father in heaven. And so the challenges of life come up and we need to say, I'm not going to grumble, I'm going to trust God. Or we say, I'm not going to trust myself to make this happen. I'm going to trust that God is the one who needs to make this happen. Uh, When it looks like life is going to fall apart completely, you need to say, God, I trust you that you have my life in your hands. Uh, When it looks like you're going to miss out on that thing that you had your heart set on, that thing that that you thought that you couldn't possibly live without, when it looks like you're going to miss out on that, you need to say to God, I trust you that if I don't get that thing, you know better than I do. I trust you that I can do without it. And we shouldn't wait until disaster strikes before we start trying to trust God. Well, if I get there and life starts falling apart, I'll trust God then. We can't do that. We need to start trusting God today. So when we get up in the morning, we need to say to God, Father, I trust you for, the, for today. We need to start the day by saying to God, I trust you. I trust you to give me all that I need. I trust you to help me to get through today. I trust you to give me all that I need to do the good works that you prepared in advance for me to do. I trust you that if there's something that I think that I need and I don't have, it must be because I don't really need it. If we don't set out to trust God, then we won't trust God. And we'll end up trusting ourselves or we'll end up trusting other people. And we'll probably still end up blaming God when things don't work, even though we were never actually trusting him in the first place. But we're trusting in everything else but him. We need to be people like Abraham. I read this week um, Romans chapter 4 where, where, where Paul says of Abraham, against all hope, in hope, Abraham believed. You know, his body was as good as dead. <laughs> There's no chance that he could have a child. You know, he wasn't going to get there through his own power and effort. He couldn't do it. You know, he was dead. Sarah's womb was dead. God had said, I'm going to give you a child. They were nearly 100 years old. And yet, Paul says of Abraham, and yet, against all hope, in hope, uh, Abraham believed, not through his own power, but through trusting in the God who made promises and the God who fulfills promises. We need to learn that. We need to learn to trust God and not our own strength and power. 
Uh, and if that's true of the basic things of life, then how much more true is that of salvation? If that's true of today and tomorrow and just living and, and, and getting through life, how much more true is that of eternity? You see, God was teaching the people in the wilderness that they needed to trust him and his provision and his words. But ultimately, what they needed in order to live and what we need in order to live is not just manna falling from heaven that we can go out and collect every morning, but we need something a whole lot more than that. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, then turn to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John, because Jesus there takes up this event and interprets it to explain, use it to explain his mission and ministry. So John chapter 6 and from verse 31. John chapter 6 and verse 31. And Jesus says, Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. He's talking about Exodus Uh, the chapters of Exodus that we read. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up. At the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus says a little bit later that the bread that God gave the people in the desert was never the end game, it was never the kind of the final deal. Because although the people ate that bread, they still died, didn't they? They all still went to their graves, they all still were buried. That bread couldn't keep them alive. But Jesus says that he is the bread of life in a way that that manna from heaven wasn't and could never be. Jesus is the real food. That just as bread sustains us for today and bread sustains us for tomorrow, Jesus is the real bread of life. He's the the bread that sustains us for eternity. That can give us eternal life. Notice how he says, as well, that whoever comes to him will never go hungry and never be thirsty. He's looking back to what happened in the wilderness, you know, when the people wandered through the desert and, and they came up on times where they, where they were thirsty and they came up on times where they were hungry and they, and they longed for something to eat and they longed for something to drink. Jesus says that if we come to him, it will never be like that. We'll never be thirsty, not really. We'll never be hungry, not, not hungry for the thing that we really need. Because in Jesus, we'll be satisfied. Satisfied with all that we need. Jesus satisfies us with what we need for life. That is, he satisfies us with himself. Extraordinary idea, isn't it? You know, that just as we feel hungry sometimes, you know, and just starving, you know, and just, uh, you can feel in your stomach, uh, you're just longing for food. 
that spiritually speaking, there's this deep longing that we have in ourselves and that nothing else in the world can satisfy that except Jesus himself. He gives us himself as our bread of life. It's him that we need. He gives us himself in his death and his resurrection. He gives us freedom from sin, from the power of sin, from the guilt of sin. He gives us the power of his resurrection, eternal life. He gives us the Holy Spirit through whom he lives in us with his Father. God's ultimate provision was not manna every morning on the ground. God's ultimate provision is Jesus Christ himself, our lifeblood, our food. The ultimate word that we need to trust, the ultimate word that we need in order to live, is Jesus. Just like it's not our brilliance or our success, which gets us everything that we have uh, or makes us sure about tomorrow, it's not our brilliance or success that will make God love us. And it's not our beauty that will earn us eternal life. Uh, and it's not your impeccable obedience that will persuade God that you're a really good sort of person. The only way that we can live, and not just for this life, but for eternity, the only way that we can live is by living on Jesus. And by what Jesus calls feeding on him. That is coming every day, saying, Jesus, you're it, I need you. We need to know him and love him and be united to him. And if we have him, if we know him, uh, and if he holds us in his hands, then, then we have the sure promises of God guaranteed to us. And we have life. We have life now and life for eternity. Uh, the Sydney evangelist John Chapman uh, used to ask people the question, what they would say to God at the last day. You know, the picture would be, you stand before God, you stand before Christ on the day of judgment. And the question is, why should I let you into the new creation? Why should I let you live in my presence forever? And John Chapman would say, if the answer begins, because I, because I deserve it, because I've earned it, because I'm a good person, because I've worked really hard, because I've been kind to other people, because I never stole anything... If the answer begins with, because I, he would say, no. No, it doesn't work like that. That's not good enough. That will never be good enough. It needs to begin with this, because Jesus. Because Jesus died, I'm forgiven. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you've guaranteed me eternal life. Because Jesus was righteous before God, I'm righteous before you. Because Jesus is accepted, I'm accepted. Because he led the way into heaven, I can follow him there. If your answer begins with Jesus, then you have life now. And you have life for all eternity. We need to learn that we don't live by our own power, that we're not saved by our own power. We're saved by living off the words of God, the very words of God about his beloved son, Jesus. 
We're saved by living off God's unshakable commitments, his promises that he has achieved in full in Jesus Christ. We're saved by knowing Jesus, the Messiah and Saviour of the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, the bread of life, who came into our world to satisfy our deepest longing and our deepest need. And Lord, some of us might not know what that deepest longing and deepest need really is. And so we look for our satisfaction and our hope in all the wrong places, in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, in our holidays. Lord, teach us to know that it comes in Jesus Christ and him alone. And some of us, Lord, are still convinced that our future and our eternity is made certain by our own power and our own strength. Lord, teach us our great weakness and so teach us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would, for those of us who have come to trust in Jesus, to rely on him, to depend on him, to feed on him every day. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for grumbling and being dissatisfied with life and our circumstances. And Lord, we ask that you would teach us to trust you more and more every day, not only for salvation, but also just for the basics of life that we would be people who honour you in a full and complete trust. Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.